Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, all. In recent press interviews or at book signings and speaking engagements, people have been asking, what's next for me now that my book is out? Well, I'm happy that I'm finally able to announce what I'll be working on. Today, Law & Crime, the leading live trial in true crime network, and I announced that we will be collaborating on an investigative podcast series that explores the case of Ilya Lichtenstein and Heather Morgan, the couple who have been accused of attempting to launder $4.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. The series will be a deep dive into the story to understand the married couple at the center of it, how they allegedly attempted to launder the Bitcoin stolen from Bitfinex, and then to look more closely at the clues that led to their arrest. I'm thrilled to be partnering with Law & Crime to tell this tale about stolen Bitcoin with the depth and level of detail it deserves. It will be a fascinating journey not only into the lives of this couple that has already captivated the internet, but into how blockchain sleuthing enabled the government to track them down. We have a press release out about it today, which you can read on Law & Crime, so if you're interested in learning more, check out the Unchained Daily newsletter today and tomorrow and or my Twitter feed. Also, as usual, I have upcoming book events for my book tour. So you can also find these at laurashin.com on the book page, which is laurashin.com slash book slash hashtag tour hyphen dates. And I'm just going to give a quick rundown through all the events. So if you live in any of these cities, you might want to come check them out. And a few of these are also virtual events. Wednesday, March 30th, I'll be speaking remotely with Six Senses about the Cryptopians at 2 p.m. Eastern. If you want to save your spot, the sign-up is at laurashin.com book. The same day, I will be speaking and moderating a panel at the National Security Institute called Crypto and National Security, How to Validate American Innovation and Verify U.S. National Security, with panelists Jerry Brito of Coin Center, Sheila Warren of the Crypto Council for Innovation, and Juan Zarate of K2 Integrity and NSI Advisory Board member. On Thursday, March 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern or 10 a.m. Pacific, I am doing a Twitter Spaces with Fingerprints DAO, in which I will be interviewed by OG crypto artist Mitchell Chan. Many of you tweeted at me about how much you loved Mitchell when he came on Unchained. So I would highly encourage you to check this out. He is a fascinating person. I'm sure he will ask great questions. And also, he knows quite a bit about journalism and plans to dive into some issues involving covering crypto. Tuesday, April 5th, if you're going to be in Miami, I will be doing a reading and signing hosted by the City of Miami Beach and Future Perfect Ventures. It will be at Sky Yard from 6 to 8 p.m. Jalak Putra, CEO of Future Perfect Ventures, will be interviewing me. You need RSVP by this Friday, April 1st, to Diana Fontani at MiamiBeachFL.gov. And then on Saturday, April 9th, I will be interviewed at the Annapolis Book Festival at 11 a.m. On Tuesday, April 12th, I will be at Startup Grind's global event in Redwood City, which is focused this year on Web3. The time is TBD. And May 4th, I will be in conversation with author Jimmy Sony at the PBS Seattle Crosscut Festival which takes place from May 4th to 7th. Again, details TBD. Finally, last but not least, I will be at the Oslo Freedom Forum from May 23rd to 25th. Again, details TBD. And now on to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the March 29th, 2022 episode of Unchained. This episode of Unchained is brought to you by Beefy Finance, the multi-chain yield optimizer. Beefy is the easiest way to earn more from your crypto. Deposit funds into Beefy's secure vaults to auto-compound yields across 12 blockchains. Got crypto? Choose Beefy. 
Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking with Cross River Bank. Request your fiat on off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com slash crypto. Buy, earn, and spend crypto on the crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first 30 days. Download the crypto.com app and get $25 with the code Laura. Link in the description. Today's guest is Do Kwan, co-founder of Terraform Labs. Welcome, Do. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. So just a heads up, everyone, that when I asked Do to come on the show, he requested that we focus on new applications he's working on because he was tired of answering the same questions all the time. And since I'm doing so many press interviews for my book and I'm also being asked the same questions all the time, I actually agree to that. We did, however, that obviously we would need to cover some basics on Terra and UST so that people wouldn't be lost and they would understand, you know, what his project's about is, and, and all that. But I just wanted to make it clear kind of like why this interview may not cover as much territory as I would typically cover in an interview. However, for those who want to hear more from Doe, he did appear on the chopping block last week. So make sure to check out that episode. Okay, so I'm just going to start with some exposition so we can, you know, make sure everybody's up to speed, but also, you know, minimize the amount of time that you spend talking about this stuff. So you can feel free to tweak anything that I say. But as I mentioned before, you're the co-founder of Terraform Labs, and that has built the Terra ecosystem. And the Terra ecosystem is probably best known for its algorithmic stable coins, such as UST, which is pegged to the US dollar. But now you have other protocols also built on top, such as Mirror, which offers synthetic assets on things like stocks, um, including U.S. stocks. Or there's Anchor, which is like a savings platform, and it currently offers yield of almost 20%. But why don't we start the discussion about your main stablecoin, UST, because you recently had big news about changes you were going to make about how it's being backed. And it used to be that in order to mint, say, 10 UST, you would have to burn $10 worth of Luna, which is the staking token of Terra. But obviously, you changed how that works. So why don't you explain what the new system is for people? Sure. So as a refresher for people that um, you know are not intimately familiar with how uh, Terra works, is that the idea is that um, in order to mint one Terra USD, which is a stable coin pegged to one US dollar, you need to burn a dollar's worth of Luna in order to do so. And then on the other side of the trade, if you're looking to redeem one Terra USD, you can trade it into the blockchain and get a dollar's worth of Luna back in return. So the idea is that Luna as the staking asset expands and contracts the supply to absorb the, the demand volatility for Terra stable coins. Uh, we've had some pretty good success with this. So TerraUSD is currently the fourth largest stablecoin in the world uh, at roughly around $16 billion in market cap. And um, by, I think, within a relatively recent future, uh, looking at its current tra growth trajectory, I think it's going to be number three relatively soon. So we recently made announcements uh, whereby we're bootstrapping a large decentralized forex reserve in the form of Bitcoin. So we've initially seeded this reserve with about $3 billion uh, in assets. Uh, and we're in the process of converting all those exogenous assets into Bitcoin. And then we have plans to grow this to some meaningful percentage of USD market cap uh, within the next year. And why did you decide to make that change? Well, so a couple of things. So the first is algorithmic stablecoins. So a system whereby Luna absorbs demand volatility for USD is reasonably robust and as Luna market cap grows, it's going to get more and more robust. But it also has the downside that in sort of drastic changes in demand, you could lead to debt spiral situations where, you know, the price of Luna is falling at the same time as the money supply of USD is contracting. In the beginning, when Terra was, you know, focusing on a limited number of use cases where, you know, the largest developer on the Terra ecosystem was Terraform Labs, which was the company that I founded, but now it's actually one of the largest ecosystems in the world. So by TVL, it is the second largest uh, smart contract platform after Ethereum. By usership, it's probably like uh, around that rank. And then the number of applications that are being built on Terra ranges from 
let's say leverage applications to options to forex to you know interest rate swaps to dog coins like dogecoin and uh, so many different things that it becomes harder and harder to reason about the demand volatility for Terra stablecoins. There's also lots of Terra stablecoins that have been exported to different blockchains. Like, uh, for example, UST is the largest used and uh, the, the largest TBL and the most frequently used tool on Curve Finance on Ethereum, for instance. The largest, one of the largest on Sabre on Solana, one of the largest on Trader Joe on Pangolin on Avalanche. So all combined, sort of the size of the economy that is being built on Terra stablecoins is becoming larger and less predictable. So it stands to reason that similar to how a lot of export-based economies uh, in the real world provision forex reserves to sort of control the short-term demand fluctuations in its currency, it became a natural choice for Terra to provision its own forex reserve as well. Uh, except, you know, in in line with what we're trying to do here, it made sense to do this in a decentralized fashion by setting up smart contracts against which people can trade in Bitcoin to mint more UST and vice versa, redeem UST against Bitcoin. So we're going to explore that a little bit more, but I also want to understand, so since previously it was Luna essentially that was backing UST, now what will be the role for Luna going forward? Well, so you can think about this as a fractional Forex reserve, right? So in the sense that before, in order to mint one pair of USD, you were burning a dollar's worth of Luna. Now it's going to be a little bit different, whereby uh, when you mint one pair of USD, some Luna is going to get burned and some Luna is going to be used to provision this decentralized Forex reserve. So you can think about like a portion of USD seniorage going to provision a large uh, reserve of exogenous assets like Bitcoin. So basically, you know, what I read was that when people, I guess, are kind of exiting Terra, that they can either redeem that for $1 worth of UST, they could redeem that for $1 worth of Luna or $0.99 worth of BTC, but that you guys will try to Oh, well, actually, I don't know this part. If you're trying to maintain the reserves at like roughly 60% Luna and 40% BTC, or if it's just that, because th- there's some ratio there around, you know, 60% of Luna. And uh, I guess, what it is, what is it? You're burning 60% of Luna and then using 40% of that to buy BTC or something? Can you? <laughs> yeah, so it's it's not a reserve ratio per se. It's, it's more that, you know, when UST is being minted, some some ratio, which we don't know yet, uh, it could be 40%, be higher or lower, would be used to acquire Bitcoin. So it's as if like UST seniorage is being used to build up BTC reserves. Okay. And so then that rate, that ratio will be flexible based on whatever other factors. And will it be the DAO? Right. Bitcoin volatility. Oh, Bitcoin volatility. And will it be the DAO that decides that ratio or? Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Because oftentimes, you know, these proposals can take a while. So how flexible and and quick do you think they'll be able to react to market volatility? Well, so, uh, for example, if we build up Bitcoin reserves at around like 40% uh, of seniorage, here's what I think about it. So first is, I, I think it'll take rare events for UST supply to contract by 40% in a short-term time period. So at a 40% reserve ratio, I feel like we would be collateralizing more than we need to, especially because the core stability mechanism is still Luna. But what the Bitcoin reserves would play a part in doing is that it would prevent death spirals because it would drastically slow down the pace by which new Luna is being minted to facilitate redemptions. Second, I think in a long-term arc, uh, we plan to be one of the largest, if not the largest, um, single wallet holder of Bitcoin, the Terra protocol itself. And I think over the long arc, the price of Bitcoin is, is going to do well. So I think the reserve ratio that we end up with in, in the long term is going to be a lot higher than the reserve uh, ratio that we paid for at acquisition. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But then within kind of a shorter time frame, maybe like from year to year, since obviously Bitcoin can be quite volatile against USD. And also since crypto assets overall tend to be correlated with each other, um, how would that affect the stability of UST? 
Yeah. So uh, I, I would say from a, if I were to put on my uh, financial planner hat, the, the worst case would be if we were buying Bitcoin now and then a crash happened six months later and it's correlated with uh, a massive fall in the demand for UST, then we would have paid for Bitcoin that we would allow redemptions for at a much cheaper price. Right. So this sort of coincidence of three different events coming together is going to be negative. But the expected value, so I mean, like applying probabilistic reasoning, I think you know, massive contractions for the UST, it gets less and less in terms of the total outstanding market cap of UST over time. And I think it's not something that's that happens so frequently as as well as, you know, like massive drop in Bitcoin. So I, I'm sort of betting that the long-term scenario of Bitcoin going up and the reserves being strong enough to withstand UST demand drops is more likely a scenario. Huh. Okay. That's really interesting. And it, it makes sense though. So somebody on Twitter, when I asked what questions I should ask you, tweeted, why does he feel the need to buy Bitcoin to back Luna? Shouldn't Luna be solid enough based on the services provided? It shows a lack of faith in the product. But it's more what you were saying that you can end up in these like downward spirals or yeah. Why don't you, what's your response to that? Well, so there's an economic argument why sort of diversifying the types of collateral that can protect uh, UST is, is a sound strategy. But I think a second dimension that hasn't been actively discussed is the diplomatic argument. And the reason is, so Terra's goal is to be the largest decentralized money in crypto, period. It is not to, it's, its goal is not to be the largest stablecoin in the Terra blockchain. So we're sort of expanding into, let's say, the Solana ecosystem, Avalanche, uh, Ethereum, Polygon. So we plan to be everywhere where there are developers and users. Now, the thing is, different from growing stablecoin demand in the Terra ecosystem itself, where trust in UST is extremely high, uh, when you go to and expand to these different ecosystems, then faith in Luna's collateral, Luna's you know fitness as collateral, is a lot less than what it is like in the Terra ecosystem. But if you have Bitcoin as collateral, then nobody in crypto really questions it because it is the apex asset. It has the soundest monetary policy. It has the most lindy. So it builds valuable bridges to be able to be a more neutral asset as we expand cross-chain. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But one thing is that, so if the Luna Foundation Guard or LFG is then using the Bitcoin to keep the peg and, and it's a centralized entity, then how does that affect the decentralization of UST? Yeah, so that's a good question. So uh, LFG is a vehicle that we put together in order to facilitate the initial capital formation of this uh, Bitcoin reserve and to fund research such that we can have credible bridging options from Bitcoin to Terra, right? But ultimately how this reserve system is going to, going to look like is that it's going to be a smart contract which houses Bitcoin that's been bridged over to Terra. And then people can mint UNST against it by depositing wrapped Bitcoin, at you know, bridged Bitcoin, and then vice versa, they can redeem UST against it, similar to how you would trade against an AMO. So it's, it's similar to wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum then where there is a centralized entity or did I misunderstand that? No, so we're you know, evaluating trust-minimized bridges in a way that, you know, WBTC have, doesn't have those properties, right? Because oh. it's, it's basically a multi-sig held by Bitcoin. Whereas for this, we're, we're exploring mainly uh, like client-based solutions. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. But obviously at the moment, I think bridges are just an area where there's sometimes security concerns. Yeah. So what, what are your thoughts on that? How to keep that secure? I, I think the biggest problem with bridges now is because there is a competitive dynamic where you need to support as many layer ones as quickly as possible. Right. So that leads to situations where a lot of the bridging teams can't spend time on core infrastructure because it's a land grab right now. Right. So the bridge that connects to as many ecosystems as possible and facilitates as much bridging transfers are going to win because it's incredibly difficult to remove vendor lock-in uh, once a certain bridge has a lot of market share. So which incentivizes a lot of these bridging teams to spend most of their time on integrations and business development rather than 
sort of making sure that the core infrastructure is secure. I think that is the fundamental problem with bridges today. But having said that, that doesn't mean that there is an inherent problem with trying to build a secure bridge from Bitcoin to a smart contract platform, especially if you remove a lot of the needs for that competitive dynamic in the equation. Okay, yeah, I think we'll have to see how that develops. So someone else was also saying that they felt that it would be disruptive to Luna to buy so much Bitcoin. So how do you expect all of this to affect the price of Luna? Yeah, so uh, one of the common criticisms that we heard is, well, if before you were burning a dollar's worth of Luna for every dollar of UST that's minted, and now we're burning 60 cents of Luna for every dollar's worth of UST that's minted, then doesn't that mean that less value is accrued to Luna? And I think the answer is likely going to be no. Uh, And that's because even though the total share of the collateralization effect from minting UST is lessened through this change, I think overall we would be able to grow the pie of people that are willing to transact and hold UST across multiple different blockchains to a magnitude that wouldn't have been possible if UST only had one collateral counterparty, right? So uh, by adding Bitcoin, I think we'd be able to win hearts and minds of a lot more people in crypto and a lot more users than just just doing this solo. So I think the overall pie is going to get larger, even though uh, the, the size that Luna would capture could potentially go down. And have you noticed that a lot of Bitcoiners got very interested in, in what you were doing and maybe you were interested in participating in the Terra ecosystem because of that? So if you look at my Twitter inbox now, it looks like the Bitcoin talks for. <laughs> and so what are people saying generally? Like it or not, I think the Bitcoin community is the largest across all of crypto. It covers the widest possible audience. Uh, it, so like the Bitcoin community might be less active on Twitter because uh, there are lots of people that use Bitcoin, love Bitcoin, might not you know work on it full time. But I think... One of the things that Bitcoin has been needing is that there's a lot that has been said comparing Bitcoin to Ethereum and then thinking about what's going to be more valuable long term. And then the idea is that Ethereum is more useful. There's more things that you can do with it. So eventually it's going to flip Bitcoin. So a lot of people think this way. But I think precisely what gives Bitcoin its value is the, is the fact that it's calcified and it's very slow to change to innovation, right? Similar to how, well, but like if you look at Ethereum, right, it changes less quickly than some of the other smart contract platforms, but it still changes all the time, right? And it's newer. It doesn't really have the same founding myth. It doesn't have, you know, the same Lindy effect that Bitcoin does. So it's significantly a less credibly neutral asset, right? So I think from that perspective, uh, there's a large and huge Bitcoin community that respects that value system, understands, you know, the credible neutralness of the Bitcoin as an asset class. But what it's been lacking is sort of a credible layer two, if you think about it, because Bitcoin is still very difficult to use, still very difficult to weave into smart contracts. And in Terra, it gets that. Not only does Bitcoin become a reserve currency for Terra USD, right? But it also gets a layer two on which it can be bridged and used across a multitude of different applications spanning from, you know, let's say other DAOs that are building on Terra to NFTs to DeFi. And I think the possibilities of that are quite interesting because now Bitcoin only needs to be really good at being one thing, being an asset. And in terms of all the expressivity, the the transaction capabilities, the throughput, all those things can happen on Terra. And is the main difference, because I do feel like there were Bitcoiners who weren't very happy about the amount of Bitcoin that was being used in DeFi on Ethereum. But is the difference there that that primarily was, you know, being held by this centralized custodian? Is that why they're kind of more open to this than they were to the other uh, version happening on Ethereum? I, I think the primary thing that those Bitcoiners didn't like about that was that it was being done on Ethereum. One. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And, and two, yeah, I, I think the fact that it, it had a centralized custodian has something to do with it. But I, I also think there's a, you know, a healthy segment of Bitcoiners thought that, you know, bringing WBTC into Ethereum was a positive change. And out of curiosity, it, this goes back to the security question, but I realized, so at the moment, 
um, you guys have already bought $3 billion worth of Bitcoin, as far as I understand. So how is that being secured? So the Luna Foundation Guard uh, has a, you know, has a council of about seven people. So it's secured in a multi-sig held by the council members. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. And then you're going to figure out kind of how to use it in a more trustless way as you go, like at some point in the future? Correct. Okay. And then how have you been purchasing the Bitcoin in a way where, the, you know, I'm sure you're trying to do it where you're not affecting the price? It's a, it's a ongoing program. So I'm, I'm going to try to say less, but let, let's just say that we try to purchase Bitcoin whenever opportunity arises. Okay. Okay. All right. It makes sense to me that you don't want to, want to reveal all your secrets there. So, and then actually just to go back to the bridging, one other thing. So do you have a timeline of when you think that, you know, whatever your plan is will be fully deployed? Yeah. So uh, we're actually going to put out a request for proposal uh, today on Agora, which is Terra's research form. And uh, we're going to look for proposals from projects that are already looking at Bitcoin bridging solutions. So there's a number uh, that focus on specifically this problem. So there's Axelar in the Cosmos ecosystem. So they have bridges to different chains, but um, they, they first sort of, you know, came to market with this idea that you can bring Bitcoin into Cosmos. Um, also, there's Nomic BTC, uh, which is working on a similar problem. Uh, we were reached out to from the folks at Blockstacks. Yeah, and as a community, we'll evaluate some of these solutions. And then I, I think in the beginning, we'll try to dip our toes in with um, diversified distribution across several different bridging solutions. And then, but I think over time, we'll, we'll see one or two that rest to the top. So one thing was that I noticed in the announcement or, or maybe in a blog post or somewhere that the reason given for purchasing Bitcoin as collateral was that it was uncorrelated to Terra. And I think um, you said that over time, the reserve would be stocked with other uncorrelated assets. So what other assets do you have in mind and how will you make those decisions about which ones to include? Well, so like earlier, I, I noted that um, building exogenous forex reserves is driven as much by diplomatic arguments as by economic ones, right? So I think it makes sense that as we expand into different chains, if we sort of build a system whereby some portion of USD is being used to acquire the native staking assets of those chains, in that case, I think we'll be able to buy a lot of goodwill and user comfort uh, with that because, well, this is for obvious reasons. Oh, so, but you're thinking crypto assets then? Crypto assets, yes. Oh, okay. I, it sounds like whatever chains you end up bridging to, those would be kind of prime candidates. Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of thinking that the vast majority of the value would be in Bitcoin, but um, I think there should be still small, you know, forex reserves on each of the smart contract platforms against which you can mint and redeem in native staking assets because the user experience of that is much more friendly, right? So for example, if you're trying to mint on Solana, for instance, like you don't want to have to bridge Bitcoin over and then like Luna over and then try to mint something. Whereas like if you can just like burn Solana and then mint UST, then that's, um, that's a very friendly user experience. Yeah, it's much easier. So in terms of these assets in the Luna Foundation Guard Reserve, you know, obviously Bitcoin and then whatever else you add, what will you be doing with that? Will you be lending it at all or rehypothecating it in any way? Or, you know, what are your thoughts there? No, we wouldn't touch it until um, the reserve system is ready to go. Ready to go. No, but I mean, when it, so when it is ready to go, then it will only be, I guess, used um, for like minting and redeeming or will you be doing anything additional with it? So yeah, it wouldn't be deployed. It would just be put into, uh, like the easiest way of thinking about it is that once the bridging is ready uh, and then we're working on a very special type of DEX, it's kind of like a virtual AMM whereby you can deposit UST and then deposit Bitcoin and people can trade against it. So once that's done, we will deposit and we will look to burn the keys once we feel like operator keys are no, are no longer necessary. Wait, I don't know if I fully understand. You're saying that this is the Bitcoin that's being put up as the reserve. You're going to essentially use it 
like as a liquidity pool on a DEX? So um, how this system works is that we're going to set up a, a special smart contract into which it's going to accept two pools. It's going to accept a pool of UST and it's going to accept a pool of Bitcoin. And then the Oracle is going to be streaming prices in terms of what the effective prices of Bitcoin at that given moment in time. So at any point, people can mint UST. So retrieve the UST from this pool by depositing Bitcoin at an exchange rate uh, of what the Oracle is telling us at par value. And then on the redemption side, you will be able to deposit USD back and then retrieve Bitcoin at uh, 99% of par. So by enforcing some small spread on the redemption side, you can make sure that the reserves only kick in when there's a depegging event on USD. Oh, oh, I see now. Oh, this is very fascinating. And then just to go back, actually, when we were talking about additional assets, who would decide which assets get added to the reserve? Would that be the DAO or would it be just like deals you make with those chains or how would you be deciding that? So actually, after we launched LFT, these are very opinionated people. And then um, they they come from very different places yeah, from the Terra book, uh, from the Terra ecosystem, but also people that are from like sit somewhere in between, right? So we've gotten a ton of proposals. Uh, some people offering to negotiate, you know, some discount deal with um, some other foundations, or there's like a really good market opportunity for this asset because it seems cheap right now. But uh, we haven't been able to reach quorum on buying anything else besides Bitcoin so far. You mean in the DAO or like among the multi stakeholders, or who who's in the quorum? Uh, so uh, among the multi stakeholders. Uh, okay. Um, so let's talk about Anchor. Currently, it pays out interest of almost 20%. And obviously, we've seen in recent weeks, there are a number of people, including crypto investors such as Polychain Capital and Arca, that are concerned that this interest rate is not sustainable. What do you think of that opinion? And then what factors would have to be in place for you to think that it's time to lower that yield? Well, so the definition of sustainability is the extent to which something can be sustained. Well, so another way of putting this is that when we first launched Anchor, the really interesting story is that most people that we spoke to said that 19% is too low. Because that was back during a time in early 2021, when you could still get like 100%, 200% APR on stablecoin pools. So the idea was that, no, you guys are not going to get any market share with 19% because it's too boring in DeFi. Like you guys are still like thinking in the mindset of traditional finance companies, like you can't be Wells Fargo anymore. Like you... Everything needs to be in triple digits to catch attention. And um, so we heard that, but we saw a future in which the yields could come down in, in the future where like, you know, when the demand for leverage collapses, then in that case, uh, during this sort of bearish market, you know, like yields would converge to something that you see in traditional finance plus some risk premium. And that's, what, that's exactly what we have today. And now people are saying the same people actually that said 20% is too low are now saying that 19% is unsustainable. And it's not so much that 19% needs to be held in perpetuity. That is definitely not the goal. But if you're asking the question of whether Anchor can be a valuable tool in sort of modulating this sort of volatility in uh, leverage demand in crypto to offer something that is a, a rate of growth, right? So 20% is definitely higher than what you would get in other stablecoin pools. But at the same time, it's something that we can you know, responsibly bring down slowly over some period of time, then I think the answer is yes. And what kind of, when, like, what would need to be happening for you to think that, okay, now is the time to lower it? So actually, uh, recently there was a, I, I think a governance proposal on Anchor, whereby the Anchor rate is changing to a dynamically calibrated rate. So the idea is that every month, the protocol will take assessment of the change in the in the size of the yield reserve month over month. And uh, it would change the anchor rate by the change in that delta. So for example, if the yield reserve goes down by 5%, then it would lower the anchor rate by 5%. Uh, well, 5% of the 20, so that would be like 1%, right? And vice versa, if the yield reserve has been operating at a surplus, then it would slightly increase the anchor rate to something that's more reasonable. So that allows the 
protocol to calibrate itself to a state where it can reasonably operate at a surplus over some long period of time. But at the same time, the changes aren't so drastic because the, the maximum rate of change that can happen over that month is a relatively small number. Hmm. Okay. Okay, that sounds interesting. And so Anchor now has uh, also launched an avalanche. Have you decided to move to any additional chains? And will you have the same yield on all the chains? Yeah, so the the yield opportunity on the lending side is going to be consistent across all the chains. So we just went live on Avalanche. We're going live on with uh, Bonded Atom and Bonded Solana, I think, over the next couple of weeks. And then we'll be following that up with uh, Polygon. Oh, okay. All right, Joe, you made it through all the the questions that I have. And now we can talk about app stuff, but we will first get a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Building the next big thing in crypto? Cross River has your back. Whether you are a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API-based platform provides the payments solutions you need to grow. Cross River is powering the future of financial services. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking. Request your fiat on-off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com slash crypto. Finance is changing. Strategies are changing. Holding is changing. Beefy Finance, the multi-chain yield optimizer, allows you to maximize passive income while you sleep. Simply deposit your crypto into Beefy's secure, industry-leading auto-compounding vaults to put your funds to work. Each one of Beefy's 740 vaults automatically reinvests the interest gained on your crypto deposits, earning you more, while saving you time and fees. Beefy's strategies create bank-busting APYs with 0% deposit fees at the click of a button. Join $1.4 billion of investments and understand why so many users trust Beefy with their financial independence. Visit beefy.finance and take control of your financial future. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first 30 days. With Crypto.com Earn, you can get industry-leading interest rates of up to 8.5% on over 40 coins, including Bitcoin, and earn up to 14% on stablecoins. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere. Enjoy up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions, and zero annual fees. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Back to my conversation with Joe. Okay, so you told me you wanted to talk about the new apps you're building in Terra right now. So I'm just going to like give you your pick. What new app would you like to talk about? So, I, I mean, they're not apps, uh, so to speak, but so I, I'm spending a lot of time... I mean, so I, I sort of think about myself as kind of a toy maker. So I, I find I find the most happiness when I'm thinking about like some new thing that can happen in crypto and still hasn't happened yet. So that sort of zero to one stage is the, the most fascinating to me. And uh, like Terra is really interesting. Running TFL is less interesting. So, but it's, 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 it. it's a, yeah, yeah. So, well, anyway, so one of the things that I've been thinking about is, um, especially now that the rest of DeFi has gotten really boring, uh, as you know, leverage command has dropped to almost zero. Um, I'm starting to think about like what it's going to take to turn DeFi speculation and to route it to productive use cases. Potential answer here is fungible labor markets. It, it has a couple of components, but if you look at most DAOs, right, um, up until recently, they were throwing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars away to incentivize liquidity. But that's sort of a I think a secondary order initiative, like ultimately what DAOs want is more people to build on their blockchains, to build on their apps, to build more frontends. So essentially they want to port developers, but they're taking an indirect way of getting there 
by incentivizing liquidity instead of developer participation. And vice versa, from the perspective of open source developers, they are massively incentivized to just fork existing projects and not add to the existing innovation because the economics of launching a new project and printing a coin is way higher than working with an existing project because there isn't like a scalable labor market that, that can work with their incentives, right? So what if you had fungible labor markets? So what I mean is, what if somebody can put up their productive hours for sale and it can trade on a DEX, like an AMM, for instance, um, and then a DAO can go out and say, hey, look, I'm going to buy a million hours of productive developer time and I'm going to give all the apps in the ecosystem the, the right to redeem these time tokens. So in that case, like somebody could go to Avalanche, for instance, and say, uh, hey, look, I'm going to put my developer hours on sale. The Avalanche DAO is going to buy a lot of it. And then I can spend my time doing open source contribution to, let's say, Trader Joe's or Pangolin or Defrost Finance. And I can have a lot of fun doing it while at the same time being fairly compensated for the work that I'm doing that is efficiently priced by the market. An interesting side product of this that I think is even more interesting is that now, once you have fungible labor, you can put this as collateral to borrow money against it. So it, it would sort of be the first case whereby you can transition DeFi from, a, from pure speculative money play into something that efficiently allocates capital to productive use cases. And the most productive use case in crypto, I might add, which is uh, the labor output of open source developers. Huh. Okay. I feel like I need to unpack this a little bit. So tell me if I got this right. Basically, a DAO would... That, like there would be an AMM, but it would be for developer hours. And then a DAO would kind of like purchase that. But then you're saying that that would be used as collateral to make loans because, so my my first reaction is like, if something is going to happen in the future, to put it up, to obtain an asset right now, when you don't even know if you have the other thing, like that's a little bit, first of all, to my mind, that's risky. But second, also, I guess, like my other thought is, so if if a developer is going to just be working across these different chains, you know, there 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 is something to institutional memory. Like, you know, if you kind of specialize in Ethereum or um, Terra or whatever, then there's just like certain kind of idiosyncrasies, I would imagine, in the code for like the different protocols or whatever, that the more you learn that, the more you build on it, then the bigger benefit that you get and also the more valuable you are to that protocol. So those are kind of maybe two questions that I have about, about what you're saying. Well, to answer your first question, I think this is quite similar to people being able to take out loans against their paychecks, right? So for example, if you are a lawyer or like if you work for a Fortune 500 company, then it becomes much easier to take out a loan from a bank. Whereas for me, I could go to a bank, every bank in the country, and I'll be turned down, turned down by every single one because I'm not considered <laughs> to have like an actual job, right? So I'm sure that's not true. But anyway, <laughs> again, you, you probably have your net worth. But anyway, wh whatever, not important. <laughs> well, the idea is that if you are able to pr pr prove an on-chain track record of, you know, various different companies of a blockchain ecosystem that are willing to redeem uh, your hourly tokens at some rate, right? Then, and all of that is recorded on-chain then it stands to reason that a lending protocol, like let's say like Mars or Compound or Aave, can take those time tokens as collateral to issue you a loan, right? And how these loans could be liquidated is that, well, if you have a proven track record of being a successful developer and a lot of people are willing to bid for your time, this lending protocol can now sell off your time tokens for cheap. And you would essentially be working for less money than you used to be before and then the lending protocol can successfully protect against their downside risk. Huh. Okay, this is interesting. Now it makes more sense. I mean, I do think, yeah, that there's like two ends of that market of getting money early from your paycheck. You know, you're right. Like a lawyer or a doctor probably will be able to take out a big loan to buy a house or whatever. But then, for instance, I know of some of those programs where essentially I'm pretty sure it's like lower salary workers who as they're working, they can get their next paycheck. So they don't have to wait every two, you know, for every two weeks or every month or whatever. 
Um, and then it just sort of feels like a little risky, like they're not managing their money very well. <laughs> That's why they need to do that. They're like living a little glu- too close to paycheck to paycheck. But anyway, okay, so that's fascinating. But so you're thinking about trying to create such a market? Yeah. So uh, it's one of the things that I'm spending a lot of time uh, working on. Like you can also build things on top of this that are really interesting, right? So you can build on uh, some notion of credit uh, because uh, what we didn't have in 2017 that we do have now is people spend a lot more time trying to curate their on-chain behavior than they used to before. And I think a large, there's, there's two contributing factors. Like number one, we have better on-chain analytics. So you don't want to do anything like sketch or weird that gets you like Zach XBT'd on Twitter or something like that. And and second, there's airdrops, right? So you have a bunch of airdrops that are being used to distribute wealth of early protocols to as many users as possible. The, The only way that people are sort of doing curation now is trying out lots of different DeFi protocols. But what they actually should be doing and what protocols should be doing is that they should be curating their airdrops based on past behavior of of something that they want to accomplish. So for example, for an NFT whitelist, they might look at the how the wallet holders have interacted with previous NFT whitelists and have they dumped the NFT right after? Are they willing to, you know, like hold it for a long period of time? Or for example, for like protocols like MakerDAO or Aave or Compound, they might sort of create a priority queue of liquidators based on their previous history of how long they were willing to hold on to the beta risk of the assets that they've, they've acquired. So for example, for Maker, if they participated in a liquidation and then they got Ether at a cheaper price and they're willing to hold it instead of dumping it to the market right away, then maybe this person gets a, gets a higher place in the priority queue. So you can sort of see, create a positive flywheel of effects whereby you incentivize people to exhibit good on-chain behavior because now you have this sort of wealth distribution through airdrops and um, some scarce resource in crypto like NFT whitelists and liquidations starting to pref users that exhibit this good behavior. And I think it's like a virtuous cycle that goes on and on. I find that really interesting. But then, but how does that relate to the fungible labor markets or is that just a separate idea? Oh, so for example, like you can apply this idea to like the fungible labor markets as well. So if you're taking a more, shall we say, like if, if if Ethereum wins, we all win type of outlook, or if like Luna wins, we all win type of outlook, then in that case, you can start to give out preferable loan terms to people that exhibit this positive, uh, good citizen behavior on chain, right? Like if you don't, if you don't care about that, then if, if you don't believe that your ability to pay a loan has anything to do with you being a good citizen, that's fine too. But you can still look at, on-chain behavior of how you are spending the capital that you borrow, right? So for example, if you're taking out a loan to go giga long on Luna, then probably your loan-to-value ratio should be lower, right? So if you're, if you're borrowing money against your future time and you're giga longing, well, Luna is like one thing. If you're giga longing on like Dogecoin, then your LTV should definitely be lower than somebody that takes that loan and then uses it to, you know, like buy something interesting. Huh. Okay. And I'm sure you've seen on Twitter in recent days that there's just a lot of chatter about what dev salary should be, especially for people working on the core protocol at these different layer ones. What are your thoughts on that? And how do you think this fungible labor market idea could affect that? So I think traditionally, if you look at the best HR practices, well, I'm, of course, I'm not an expert here, but um, I, I, the, the way that I think about it is the expected utility output of a very strong individual contributor for a very successful company or protocol is generally the same or higher than somebody that takes on a lot of risks and jumps to building their own thing. That's how you incentivize best talent to stay uh, like in your protocol or in your DAO or in your company as versus like striking out and doing their own thing, right? And the way that you do this doesn't mean necessarily that you need to pay more than somebody that raises like a series B for a startup. But it's the idea that from a risk adjusted return perspective, like you actually don't need money after some threshold, right? So you definitely don't want to underpay people. But at, at the same time, like if you pay them top dollar, then it doesn't actually matter to them, like whether to make a little bit more money after that, right? So I, I think 
returns from an absolute basis should correspond to the amount of risk that people are taking. But at the same time, like you, I think you need to be cognizant that if you're paying above market, then usually people don't care. Right. But then, so you feel like this fungible labor market would make things more efficient or like, what do you, how do you think that that would affect how much devs are being paid? I think it would make pay more cyclical, which means that during a time when there is a lot of demand to, to build various things for DAOs, I can see developer salaries going up to something ridiculous, right? Uh, so the types of things that you see in sort of traditional employment markets, like wage stickiness, that doesn't apply anymore because uh, DAOs would just be on like a, like a buying spree for the very best top talent. And there wouldn't be any sort of institutions or structures that prevents wage stickiness from, from forming, right? So you, you would be able to see some people getting paid like $5 million, like $10 million because they have what it takes. So for example, if you were trying to hire Bonteg, for instance, from your finance, and let's say that this market existed in 2021 or 2020, in that case, I think his salary would have been like above that for sure. You know, but you would also be able to see, you know, demand for time tokens going down if in a specific sector, there's more people that are willing to supply the same unit of labor. Right, right. But right now on crypto, yeah, definitely that's not the case. I feel like there's a lot more demand. We're definitely far off from from that day. So I don't know, is there any more that you wanted to add about these thoughts that you're having and, and building the fungible labor market? Like, are you actively trying to build something like that right now? Or is this just something you've been kind of noodling on in your head? I actually have the guy that's working on it staying with me right now. He's like behind this wall, but um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a project called Kronos Finance. And um, he's, um, he actually used to be like a founding member at TFL um, and uh, okay. used to be our head of research. But like, you know, we, we put together a seed fund recently and he's built a team out here and we're, we're chipping at it uh, pretty frequently. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So maybe we'll start to see more freelance devs who are paid via some tokenized marketplace. So I don't know if you have other apps that you want to talk about, but I did actually want to ask you on Thor, about ThorChain, you know, kind of where you saw that in the broader ecosystem and, you know, kind of why uh, Luna is integrating with that and like where you think that would go. So I think the market that ThorChain is tapping into is absolutely massive. And it's one of those things that really do need to exist in the crypto space. And the reason for this is, you know, even today, like if you wanted to trade Bitcoin, the only real way to do it is to go to go through centralized intermediaries, right? So if you're not comfortable with Bitcoin custodianship of your Bitcoin, then there isn't really a way to trade any of this on chain. But the thing is, if you have a decentralized exchange that are credibly cross-chain, right, bridges to all the major protocols, and then you can trade Bitcoin and all the other uh, UTXO assets in, in a credible way with low slippage, then it becomes massively exciting, right? Then in that case, it sort of takes uh, the business model of most of the major centralized spot exchanges. The issue I, I feel like is um, it's very difficult to compete on a cost basis uh, in terms of slippage and trading fees on what centralized uh, exchanges are willing to offer. And number two, I think the market is definitely very excited, but it's a little bit cautious given some of the, you know, the, the security issues that, that have happened through ThorChain uh, last year. So I think it's going to take a little bit of time to build that trust back. But once they do, I think ThorChain is going to be like one of the most major important, uh, one of the most important institutions um, in crypto. And so, is that why LFG is not using ThorChain now, or would it might it in the future once the security issues are really kind of squared away? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, so I am personally very bullish on ThorChain, and I think it's very important. But the money that the council is managing for LFG. We can't spend it based on personal sets of beliefs, right? So we need to be objective and look at things. And I guess it's very hard to justify objectively parking, you know, uh, billions of dollars into ThorChain just quite yet, right? Um, but I think over time, as there's less security incidents and people build more faith in the ability for ThorChain to bridge over, I think that's definitely in the option space. 
Okay. So in terms of apps on Terra, I mean, it's like a burgeoning ecosystem. You know, I looked at something I think um, someone in your community tweeted about all the applications being built. So are there any other ones that you wanted to chat about? Well, just out of curiosity, which ones did you take a look at? Well, it was more, I mean, there were so many. So all I did was just note, I mean, you have ones across lending, derivatives, DEXs, wallets, obviously synthetics, you know, stable coins, gambling, social stuff, gaming, savings and payments, tooling, yield farming. I mean, there's so much asset management, insurance. So it's like, it's just like a whole ecosystem right now. So I don't know. I mean, within that, there were literally probably, I don't know, a few hundred on that image that I saw. So I don't know if there are any other particular ones that you want to talk about. Yeah. So uh, there's a couple of that, you know, that stood out to me as very interesting. So uh, prison protocol is is very interesting because um, it's it's one of those primitives that allow DeFi yields to become more responsible, if you, if you may. So it's kind of an interest rate swap protocol. So the idea is that if you put in any yield-bearing asset into the Prism smart contract, it gives you two derivatives. So one of them is called the P asset, which gives you exposure to the principal. And the second is called the Y asset, which gives you physical delivery of the yield of the yield-bearing asset on a monthly basis. So if you wanted to lever up and get exposure to only, let's say, the yield potential of Luna or an LP token on Astroport, then you would you know, put those LP tokens or Luna into the Prism smart contract get two tokens and then sell the P Luna token and then buy more Y Luna tokens so that you get leveraged exposure to just the yield. If you don't care about the yield and you wanted leverage exposure to Luna's principal value uh, accumulation over time, then you mint them, uh, sell Y Luna, and then just buy more P Luna. And I'm sorry, what was the name of that one? Prism Protocol. Oh, okay. That's super fascinating. Yeah, I feel like... Uh, definitely it would appeal it's probably to both there's like two different types of people that it would appeal to so i like that so one other thing i wanted to ask you about was south korea which you know which which is where you're from just elected a new president who's pro crypto what impact do you see that having on terra and on crypto in general um as far as i understand i do think that you moved out of korea i'm not actually sure for what the reason is for that. I think you're now based in Singapore. But obviously, Korea has been a huge market for crypto. It's got major adoption in that country. So I was just curious for your thoughts on what that signified. Actually, what's been interesting in this presidential cycle was that both major candidates were like a third of their stump time was being spent on talking about crypto, which is super fascinating. But at the same <laughs> time, it's not surprising. It's not surprising given that a third of the population in Korea either hold or trade crypto. So th that's crazy. So if you look at, I, I think like the MAU for update, it's like 10 million, uh, 10 million users or something at a population base of uh, 45 million. So which is crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. Like you had one of the major presidential candidates minting NFTs, right? And I think they got somebody from Hash to help, help, help them out with that or something. And then airdrop them to people that showed up to rallies or, you know, uh, sent in campaign donations or things like that. And then the, the president-elect, uh, one of his most important campaign promises was to delay uh, introducing crypto taxes for another year. So now uh, there will be no crypto taxes for another two years. This is exactly why I keep telling my publisher they need to do a Korean edition of my book. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, so Korea is a really interesting market, right? So most Koreans got into crypto, I think, around the bull market of 2017. And there's a, a lot of fresh entrants that enter the market since. So they actually don't really understand the provenance of, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum. So they don't understand why these assets have more Lindy effect, especially because most of the literature and the discussions that have been made around Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are in a foreign language. So... It's a little bit different from China, which, you know, the, the core of that crypto base are miners, right? Which got in very early. So they understand why Bitcoin is powerful, why Ethereum is powerful, why, why some altcoins are powerful. But if you look at the top charts on Upbit, it's actually not like, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum or even Luna that's, you know, that, that is the highest in volume. On any given day on Upbit, usually, uh, especially if the markets are bullish, you would have like this green shitcoin that you've never heard of. It could be 
actually like what okay this is hilarious so one of the korean projects was called seven ships or something like that and the the reason why it was called seven ships was that there was a famous korean general back in like the 1400s or something that <laughs> defeated an armada of japanese invaders with just seven ships and the idea was that in this day and age where there's hundreds of foreign crypto projects that are uh outlining the front page of update we are going to be like that you know like freedom fighter general <laughs> that fought back all the foreign invaders and that thing pumped like there were billions of dollars oh, no. uh in trading volume for seven ships at one point and if you look at what the project actually does it's hilarious so they create these um cooling machines that look like the ships that the general used back in the day and then they plant this very special type of flower that only grows in Jeju Island and the idea is that you would use uh the heat that is coming from bitcoin miners and use that to fuel this little like flower thing which can only grow in tropical climates <laughs> right so that's like mind blowingly stupid but that just did incredibly well Oh my god. Oh no. I hope a lot of people did. I'm sure a lot of I guess a lot of people probably lost money on that. Everybody lost money, yes. Oh no. Oh boy. I I'm surprised that Koreans are still so enthusiastic after something like that. Well, so the the reason why crypto is so popular in Korea is because the other investable asset classes are so heavily regulated. For example, if you look at real estate they've started to cut down on the ability for people to take out loans to purchase houses because they want to keep the price of housing low but what that also means is that it creates a massive entry barrier for people that want to buy houses because unless you have the ability to drop like a million dollars in a house you can't buy anything right and then if you look at the stock market the only thing worth buying is samsung right and for, for all the other stuff it's like yeah i mean like you understand like stock market is just not as attractive in lots of other markets outside the united states So um you can invest in something but generally it doesn't go up like what the S&P 500 goes up and if you are making a strong directional bet 33% of the stock market is basically Samsung. So you're betting all your eggs on just one company which is very risky. So uh crypto being you know not having those you know like regulatory safeguards and you know people haven't stepped in yet to try to curb in this industry and in some sense it's like fundamentally very difficult to do like you can't try to regulate bitcoin for instance or try to make bitcoin less successful just from the perspective of one smaller nation state so which is why a lot of people got very excited about the asset class and started to ape in at, at scale and there's definitely some downsides of this so like the seven ship story and several different you know horror stories are just indicative of a uh, speculative fervor that isn't really being shaped by you know genuine interest in the asset class it's more you know lack of interesting alternatives to investing. Yeah, or some kind of desire to get rich quick or like treat it more like gambling. But then so to go back to the earlier question about the new Korean president, like obviously I mean people in the US where is, you know, most of my audience is based will know obviously you have had run-ins with regulators here in the US, the SEC. But, you know, Korea kind of has like gone back and forth in terms of how welcoming the regulation has been to crypto so kind of what's your sense of like how this new president might affect the market there so i think it's going to be a super positive development and because especially because the last administration which was a little bit more analogous to the democratic party in the us they were very strong handed uh with crypto and that bought a lot of ire from as i said previously a significant chunk of the population So this incoming president ran on a platform to counter everything that the previous administration did and one of the ways in which he did that was to cater to a very crypto specific platform. So that essentially boils down to, you know, three large promises. Number one, to deregulate crypto exchanges. This is going to be massive. Not all positive, but it's going to be massive in the sense that lots of things that crypto exchanges weren't able to do before. So for example, like besides Upbit it hasn't been able uh, it hasn't been possible to sign up for a fiat on-ramp account on any of the other major exchanges for the last 2 years right oh which God. is why upbit is dominant and even for upbit they need to use this tiny savings bank that nobody used to use before upbit used to integrate so the user experience of getting money into crypto is terrible 
Now, it's crazy that so many people are trading crypto despite of all of this, right? Yeah, so crypto exchange is going to be deregulated. Number two, he said he's going to allow people to do ICOs. I have mixed feelings about this, but at at, at the same time, it's probably not bearish for things that are going on in crypto. Number three, to delay crypto taxes for at least another year. So at least two years off from now. All right. Well, is there anything I didn't ask you about since, you know, you said that you kind of wanted to give your own thoughts on certain things? Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to mention for my listeners? No, no, th- this is great. Um, it's, it's, uh, it was very fun. Uh, thanks for putting this together. Oh, yeah. No, I really enjoyed it, too. I'm really glad that we did the improv section of the interview. That was super fun. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Doe, Tara, and all of the other stuff that we discussed on the show, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Mark Murdoch, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. <laughs>